Mickey scopes out the present, shakes out the past, and keeps an eye out on the future. This is the Racing with Bruno podcast. Now, from Lexington, Kentucky, here's Bruno DiGiulio. And welcome to the Racing with Bruno podcast. I've got a great guest with us tonight. Um, he is a, uh, a guy that I've gotten to know because of Twitter. As much as Twitter is maligned, you have the opportunity to really meet some great people. Yeah, you got some awful boneheads on Twitter. This guy's not a bonehead. In fact, he's a proud father and grandfather. He's a, he's a member of the NTRA NHC Hall of Fame, chairman for the NHC Players Committee. He co-hosts with Scott Carson, the Sport of Kings.net podcast. Let me bring him right on board. Christopher Larmy. And, and Christopher, I got to tell you, first of all, you have got the greatest email address of all time. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've had some comments on that before. <laughs> well, you want to tell everybody? You don't have to tell them the, uh, you know, the, the the server. But what is your actual email says? Uh, <laughs> do I have to say this on the air? Um, it says uh, Larmy. That's my last name. Uh, dot uh, J U N K. Junk. Larmy's junk. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is the best email ever, ever, you know, um, but, um, but Hey, you're part of the NTRA NHC hall of fame. Tell us how you got to be in the hall of fame and, and, and what is your duties being a chairman of the NHC players committee? Well, uh, the players committee was put together. I don't know, maybe it was, 10 or 12 years ago to help advise the NTRA on how to improve uh, the contests that lead up to the NHC. We created a tour, didn't exist prior to that, and how to improve the NHC itself, you know, make it better for the players. You're sort of the player's representative. You don't really have any authority. We just advise the NTRA, but, you know, they listen to us and, and we get to weigh in on most things. And um, I got started on that early on and, um, when Mike Mayo, he was the chairman for a while, and when he unfortunately passed away, um, I took up the mantle and tried to continue ahead with that. And, you know, we've done quite a few changes to the NHC over the years. I don't know how familiar you or the listeners are with it, but the format's changed quite a bit. Um, it's not perfect, but I think it's, it's improved, and it's a really good test of, you know, overall handicapping ability you have to do some optional races and some mandatory races and you have to make some cuts to get to that final table. And then we created that final table to sort of make it more exciting for people um, at the NHC and hopefully to eventually get it on uh, televised or at least a live stream of the contest. We we're planning to do that this year, but the COVID stuff sort of got in the way. So that that's sort of the, the gist of the committee. And I've been the chairman for a while now. Um, and we have 10, a 10 to 12 other people on the committee. We kind of rotate people in and out. Some are like veteran players that have been doing it for a long time. We try to get a few of the younger players too, just so we get and, and kind of spread it out geographically so we get a good diverse group, get different opinions. So tell us a little bit about how Christopher was able to get into the Hall of Fame, uh, NHC Hall of Fame. It's not something you can buy in. 
Yeah, I mean, the process for getting selected has changed a bit. Uh, currently, it's sort of a peer uh, selection where there's a, a group that includes a committee, but it has others um, as well that create an, a group of nominees. And then we let the tour players actually vote on who they want to vote into the Hall of Fame. Uh, not every tour player can make it. There's some conditions in terms of how long you've been on the tour. and But um, I think we had like four or 500 people that voted this year. So it's kind of a peer selection process, and that's how you get in. Um, you know, I've had success in the um, contest world. You know, I've also helped contribute, you know, through the time spent on the committee as a chairman. And, and probably the thing that got me over the hump for getting selected was uh, I helped in the effort to get some tax laws changed for horse players so that, um, you know, when you have these uh, uh, – Big scores where um, it was used to be anything over, you know, six hundred dollars and three hundred one. You had to sign, and if it was over five thousand dollars, it got withheld. We got to change the rules so that it looked at everything you bet into the pool rather than just assuming you had a one dollar ticket, and that kind of eliminated ninety eight, ninety nine percent of this the the uh, need to sign or have any money withheld. So that was a big win for horse players. And um, I, I just played a small role in that. It was kind of fun. I got to go and lobby um, some of the congressmen and the Treasury Department on behalf of the players, try to get that change made. I thought it was a real long shot, but it actually ended up, they actually made a change in the tax rules that was favorable to uh, the us degenerate horse players. So that was great. And on behalf of horse players, thank you very much. Um, I can tell you uh, for a horse player that, from being a horse player that in the last, you know, 36 months, I've had three six figure uh, above $30,000 scores uh, that I paid basically didn't, they would have, they would have killed me on, on that. If I would have, if those rules had not been changed. So thank you very much. And, and, and it's the rules are right now. And I think you did a great job and you're in my hall of fame for that. (laughs) <laughs> well, I don't yeah. want to take all the credit. I played a small part. There was a lot of people who worked a lot harder than I did, but I got to help sort of carry the ball across the finish line, and that was fun. Um, and, you know, I'm glad to be part of that. And I, I benefited from, from it just like you and the, everybody else. So yeah. I was really happy about that. So now that we've gotten the introduction out of the way, and we know you're not a Twitter bonehead, that's for sure. Um, tell me a little bit about, what does and by the way, if you want to follow Chris, you can follow him at Derby nineteen. Uh, excuse me, Derby fifteen ninety two. Um, great year, not that I know, but Derby. Well, I'm old <laughs> enough; I probably do know it. You know, um, actually, Derby. it's not the year that 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 represents uh, an important number in Derby history, Kentucky Derby history. One five ninety two. Yeah, 159 and two-fifths seconds. Oh, that was Secretariat's time oh, in the Derby. Okay, okay. I get it now. I get it now. That's that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. But you can follow uh, Chris at Derby1592 on Twitter. Um, I've looked at uh, – I, I, he's on um, my favorite list. I get to see all his tweets. Um, he also does a podcast with Scott Carson, which I've been uh, fortunate to be on, and that was a lot of fun. Um, 
you know, and I got to be opinionated that day about a couple of things. Uh, Lord have mercy. You know, sometimes I get opinionated. People don't like it. You guys really appreciated it. And uh, I, I love to do, I, I, you know, I loved it. It was a really fun podcast to do. Um, tell me a little bit about your relationship with, with Scott. How did you guys come about doing it? And tell us a little bit about your Sport of Kings podcast. Well, Scott is sort of a pioneer on handicapping contests online. He's created what was called publichandicapper.com at the time. It was a free online contest. This was back at you know the early days of the internet. It was like 20 years ago. And um, I started participating in that and got to met, meet Scott through that. And then we started going to contests and kind of getting together at the contest, sitting together. You know, that's another thing about the NHC and contests in general, especially if you go to the live contests. Um, now that it, it, with COVID, it's been a little tough, but you get to meet a lot of players that you wouldn't normally meet and develop sort of lifelong relationships. And that's what Scott and I did. We kind of hit it off and stayed together um, through uh, the contest, his site and contests in general. And then um, Scott started a new website. Uh, the other one was purchased by DRF and then discontinued. And he created his own sportofkings.net site. And um, we decided to do a podcast kind of in conjunction with that. It was sort of, we tried to sort of mimic just what he and I would sit around before at a race car, at a track or at a contest, you know, just kind of going back and forth our opinions on, on different races, just kind of tried to bring that onto a podcast, uh, you know, to help other players, kind of fun to share opinions and also to give some of the, the newer players, you know, a little bit of, um, some ideas and different ways to think about it. Scott and I both are quite different in the way we think about handicapping um, than, than a lot of other people. You know, if you're interested in hearing which uh, favorite we're going to pound in the pick five, that's probably not your podcast, but if you're interested in maybe some different kinds of opinions, some alternatives to the favorites, that's sort of what we focus in on. And and it seems like Joe is really taken to your, to your <laughs> you know, he has decided that he is going to be vocal. Uh, he'll do that once in a while. So and that was not me yelping or laughing. That was Joe. So hopefully I that means that. he likes me. Hopefully. Oh, that's, absolutely. That's a good thing. Well, what right, I'm going to do. So now I'm going to reward him, your voice, with some treats. So, um so he'll actually behave himself. There's been times where I've done podcasts and he's been nipping at my eels the whole entire time. And it gets to be kind of funny because you can hear me moving around because I'm trying to get away from him because he's nipping at my heels, literally. So he knows when I'm on a podcast. Am I right, buddy? Do you know when I'm on a podcast? No answer? Yeah, of course. You know, uh, but... um. That is a beautiful dog, too. I've seen your pictures. Um, those huskies, very popular where I live here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, oh, are you? Yeah. That, they, you know, he is. I, he, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. The other day I told him he was my best friend and he rolled his eyes. I mean, it's <laughs> like I, I'll tell you one thing. If I do something wrong, it's like having my, you know, my ex-wife back. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, he lets me know. He lets me know. Right, buddy? And uh, he loves being around me, and 
and I love being around him, and he is a lot of fun. Are you a lot of fun? You like he he goes to the track with me a lot too, so that's actually, yeah. He likes to be in there. Yeah, so. if you're a skateboarder, he'd be great. Just hook the harness up and have him around. Oh, oh no, no, he will take left hand turns and right hand turns at a moment's notice. I've thought about taking the bike and taking him for walks. He would, I, I, I swear, it, it would be the biggest train wreck you'll ever see. You know, but um, so anyway. Yeah, we want it, We don't want you to get hurt. That, that especially uh, right before the Breeders' Cup. So, uh, yeah. yeah, don't do that. Um, as far as um, we were talking about your podcast with Chris, uh, with Scott, and and I, like I said, I, 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 I was fortunate enough to be on one with you guys. Um, you guys are very opinionated. You're right. There is no uh, pounding favorites. Um, but let's talk about that for a second. You know, some of my biggest scores were was Kian a favorite and coming up with two, three bombs in the pick five to make it work. Um, all favorites aren't that bad. No, but it was those two or three bombs that made it memorable, not the favorite. True, but I was able to use more horses in those other races because I singled. I did pull a bonehead thing once. I, I decided that I thought Songbird was going to be beatable, and I played against her, and I was right, but I had the wrong horse. Uh, you know, but, uh, but you know, I, I just think there's certain favorites that people can play with confidence and can oh, play I, them I... in the exactus with confidence. I, I just see so much handicappers just blasting off and, mouthing off about about uh, beating the chalk well the chalk wins three out of ten races you're gonna have to you know you got if you can pick your spot you can improve your your roi by knowing when to use them and knowing when you know knowing when to fold them and knowing to hit them and knowing to fold them you know yeah yeah definitely especially on a on a pick five there's nothing wrong with singling a favorite now, if you start spreading and including the favorite, then you're making a mistake from a yeah, wagering correct. standpoint. Right. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not against that. It's just on the podcast, we don't want to state the obvious. You know, we're trying to give people some things to think about that that might help them, maybe even in other races going forward, and, and just telling them why you think the favorite's going to win. Um, that's usually not too helpful. Although there are times, like this last week, I said, you know um, – you know, the Appleby horse, um, I'm trying to remember the name of that horse that uh, was at the Canadian International. Uh, it, he was, to me, I said he laid over the field. He was just a single in the pick five, and, you know, you're not going to beat him. So, you know, sometimes I go with the chalk, but it, you know, it, it's, it, I just try not to make that habitual, put it that way. Hey, you know, I, I've always found that um, playing the races over the last 35 years, that every race is different and I don't call the chalk because I'll tell you the way that the gambling is now in the wagering, you could say, Oh, this horse is a chalk. I can't play him. He won't be the chalk by the time they go off. You know, yeah. you get how many odds drop that you go, oh, I'm betting this nine to two horse. You bet him with six minutes to go. And next thing you know, he's two to one. Yeah, we saw some of that at Woodbine this weekend. Yeah. Horse, yeah. Horses 19 to 1 heading to the finish line and 10 to 1 when they cross the line. So, yeah, did you, you can get did hurt. You, did you see the post today from Woodbine 
about that they had a problem with the actual uh, posting of the odds that they were incorrect? No, I did not see that. So they're saying it was a, it was an error. It wasn't a late odds change, just that they weren't posting the correct odds during the race. Is that what yeah, they said? Yeah, ain't that wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it's true, <laughs> but yeah, well, it was on the either end. way, it's not good. Wait, 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 yeah, wait it, a minute, wait a minute, Derby 1950, 1952 or fifteen ninety two. <laughs> sorry, yeah, you know, wait a minute. Internet does not tell you 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 the the, the truth is not on the internet. Uh, it's probably what? out there somewhere. <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and if anybody knows how sarcastic I am, they totally understand where I'm coming from. Um, that's the last place I would take anything for, you know, uh, to be truthful. Um, but how's, um, when you talk about, when we talk about favorites, we talk about tickets. Structuring tickets is incredibly important. Um, I talk to a lot, we do, a, uh, I do a lot of Zooms and we do a lot of discussions and a lot of people always want to know, oh, let's do a ticket structure thing. Do you, I, I strongly feel that wagering or betting is very much a, a, a individual, a private, it, it's, it's personal. I bet a certain way. You bet a different way. Scott bets another way. You know, a, a player, Joe, Joe Sixpack, bets another way it's very hard to tell somebody how to bet a race because of their own personal you know it, it's funny you tell people you know i'm not a you know uh, if you're gonna play to to pick five or pick six i always try to play a lot of races you know horizontally rather than i mean vertically rather than horizontally you go to station to station i like to play exactas and maybe trifectas and you get the one guy oh i i, I hate playing exactas but then, and you know, so how do you, how do you describe to someone or teach them how to wager um, when everybody's got their own opinion on how to do it? Well, you know, I, I don't claim to have all the answers, but I think there are some fundamental things you need to keep in mind. You know, one is it has, you have to wager in a way that, it's based on your opinion of the race. So, and you're right. Your opinion is different than anybody else's. You may think a horse lays over the field. Someone else may think the horse has no chance. So the way you bet, you want to make sure that you bet and it's aligned with the way you think the race is going to unfold. So your opinion, your betting should be consistent with that. Now, I'll argue that if you bet, if you have an opinion, say that, hey, I think this favorite is really weak. And then you use that favorite in the pick five. I think that's that's a bad bet because not because um, you know you it's not a bad bet for everybody. But if you really think that's a vulnerable favorite, then you should bet in a way that matches your opinion. So if your betting is contradicting your opinion of the race, that's a bad bet. So that's one fundamental. You want to make sure your bet reflects your opinion. If you think it's a strong favorite, fine pound that favorite if you think it's a weak favorite the worst thing you'd be doing is betting that horse because then you're betting against your opinion so that's yeah. that's one thing i think is really fundamental you know uh, and also you know like for example this weekend on sunday 
uh, I, I like to watch our horses um, warm up. And there was a race at Churchill. I think the seven was the favorite. It was an early race. It was four to five. And I'm watching them warm up. And I'm like, that horse looks bad behind. So you start looking for horses to beat it. Um, that's something that's hard to describe to players. Because when you try to describe that to players, it's very hard to get them to understand how a horse moves. So when people ask me, how do you look at paddock, post parade, and, and how do you wager that? That's a really tough question to answer, um, a- along with the betting, because the betting is my personal way of, of approaching the races which may not be the, the Christopher or the Scott Carson way of looking at, at, at playing the races. So how do you approach when you talk to handicappers? I, use, I, I almost feel like you have to be sensitive. Boy, that coming from me, that's really interesting, <laughs> to what other people think. You mean in terms of how you're going to bet or how they you think the crowd will bet? Well, no. Where Let's say I'm talking to a group of people and I'm trying to follow, you know, and they want to know how I'm going to play or how I would play the race. But you don't know if you describe how to play the race that some people are not, they're, they're, they're not going to take that opinion or they're not going to believe in that opinion because it goes against what they want to do. And, and yeah. I, that, is one, that is one biggest problem with handicappers. They're too much thinking about what they want to do rather than the whole, the whole big picture is try to pick the winner. Well, yeah, and I would say the other fundamental, other than making sure you bet, or one of the other fundamentals besides just betting your opinion, is you have to understand what are your goals. You know, why are you playing? What is it you want to get out of it? If your goal is... You know, I want to become a professional horse player or I want to turn a long term profit, then that is going to dictate the way you bet to some extent. If your goal is, hey, I just want to cash some tickets and have fun and maybe break even at the end of the, the car of the day, you know, that's different. And the way you would approach, um, you know, how you bet would be different. Also, you know, it's kind of what's your tolerance, your appetite for risk are you know, are you willing to take chances and lose money and maybe have a day where you go over or will that just be something that drives you crazy mentally? So you have to take that to, into account too. So you're right. It's individual, but you do kind of need to, to figure out why you're in the game. And if you are in it to try to, try to make a long-term profit, then there are, then that does kind of drive you to some different ways of thinking about how, how you're going to structure your bets. If you're out there just to try to cash some tickets and have some fun, you know, then it's quite a bit different the way you approach things. I'll give you a third version of handicappers nowadays. Since social media is the glory. The glory of having, it's not about cashing the ticket or betting on the winner. It's about having that long shot. And I really believe that is a disease right now within handicappers. Because they are pursuing the glory of being on social media and picking a long shot rather than just playing the game from how do I, what word do I use? 
the way it was meant to, fundamental the way it was meant to be handicapping is about betting the winner of the race period right handicapping that's not again i totally agree with you handicapping is trying to figure out you know, who's who are the likely winners? You know, what's the likelihood of this horse winning versus that horse? That's the handicapping part for right, sure. Right, right, right. That's you, not the betting part, though. You no, know, it's okay, turning I, that I opinion into a wager. Right, yeah, right. I said it wrong. Handicapping is to pick is to find the winner. But it's or to find a good. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or the, the most not the most. Well, the most likely winner or the, the, the most. The, how do I put it? Um the most unlikely winner too. Um, and I just think a lot of handicappers now are going for glory. Yeah, but we always have. I mean, part of it's that king of the world that Andrew Bayer talks about, that feeling of, you know, you outsmarted the, the, the pack and, you know, you landed on a horse that most people didn't and you cashed and made a score. I mean, that's fun. And you're right. It gets kind of amplified with social media, but that's always been around. Um, and that's why, and if that's why people play, they want to try to experience those moments, then, then I'm all for them, you know, trying to find the long shots and focusing on that. If that's what they're looking for, that's why it comes back to, you know, why are you in the game? I don't chastise them for that. Just have them recognize that's what they're doing. And that, you know, with that approach, you're probably going to have a lot of uh, losing streaks that you're going to have to suffer through. If which, goes into into the other, which goes into the other uh, part that goes to follow is a lot of people can't handle that. Right. They, they can't yeah. handle, you know, I've had days where like, I'll give you a great example of Saratoga. It was one Saturday. I, I awful. It was beyond awful. Okay. You know, I have learned that I just don't let it get to me. The next day I had seven winners on top. And well, once you, yeah. you know, yeah. When you realize that, that when you have a bad day, you just have a bad day. You just shuck it off and throw it behind you. I remember in the old days, you know, the old Bruno, when he was just starting handicapping, you know, I had one day, one bad day. I was changing everything. So you make a, uh, that's a really good point. I mean, in poker, they call it going on tilt. Um, you know, you have a real bad beat or a bad streak and just dealing with that mentally and being able to turn the page and focus on the next race or the next card. You know, that's something you have to learn. Some people, it's a lot easier to do than others. And that's why you got to, uh, if that's true, and you're one of those people who can go on tilt pretty easily, you got to recognize that and sort of approach your wagering a little bit differently than somebody that can handle it better. Sometimes it's just a matter of just getting up and taking a walk. Um, I, I've, I've told a $25,000 story. You know, uh, I was at Saratoga. This was about 2016. And um, about 10 minutes before the pick five starts, um, I'm ready to put my ticket in. I loved uh, the fifth race was a maiden race. Loved a race with a first-time starter. And um, I knew he was going to be a big price. So I'm going to be sitting down. I actually popped open a soul beer, took my lime, I threw it in, I put it on the table spilt it right over the computer right under the tv this is what seven eight minutes to post and i had to clean it all up you know can't have sticky keys when you're you know 
doing your pick fives and pick fours. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to bet today. This is an omen. I'm not, you know. And I, of course, my, you know, a long sh- my, one of my horses I was going to use wins the first leg. And I said, all right, I'm going to put a pick four. I'm going to have lunch. I'm going to relax. And I'm going to put the pick four in. And it ended up being a $26,000 score. But it, it, what, what it took is that for me to just take a moment, calm down, open up a new beer, make sure I don't spill it, you know, make my food, make sure I don't drop it, put it away from reach where I can do any damage. And, um, and it worked out. And um, a lot of handicappers can't do that. And on our Zooms, I've really worked hard with our group of gold members. And I'm telling you, teaching them to cancel out the noise works. So what do you do to cancel the noise out as a handicapper? You've been doing this a long time. How do you cancel that noise out? Well, it helps if you've been doing it for a long time and you've had success for a long period of time. Then you sort of have the confidence to you know kind of choose your own path and stick with it and trust the process that you've developed um you know without that if you're new it's kind of hard it's a little bit harder um i i like hearing what other people have to say but i don't change my mind based on that i may factor that in to an opinion that i had if there's a horse i really like and i hear everybody else loves it too then I probably know that that eight to one morning line is probably not going to hold up. And so I won't get, you know, I'll factor that in. Or, you know, if there's a horse that I, everyone I talk to, nobody mentions it. I can say, well, you know what, this one I think really is under the radar. I might have some value on, on this horse and I'll say, Hey, can I build my day around this horse? Because, you know, this could make the day. So I, I don't, you know, to me, I, I like listening to people, but I think the key is you want to surround your people surround yourself with people whose opinions you respect and that help you and stay away from the people who don't are just noise, especially the real negative ones that are all that are always downers and they want to bring you down with them. You just want to avoid those people. But if you surround yourself with the right kind of people, you know, you'll get some good opinions and that's going to improve your handicapping and their handicapping. And that's kind of what our podcast is all about is, you know, just sharing opinions. We always have a guest like yourself. Hopefully we'll have you on again here before the Breeders' Cup. And, you know, by listening to those other opinions, you can learn something because the one thing that I think is really important, and I've been doing this for a long time, is I'm still learning. I'm still changing. The game changes, and I've been adjusting what I do today, the process I use to handicaps, night and day compared to what I did, you know, 30 years ago. So that's another important thing. You have to be flexible and change over time. I speak about that all the time, how a lot of handicappers handicap like it's 1999 buyer with figures and bias. And well, the red, red markers in the DRF paper. Oh, DRF, exactly. Yeah. You know, people don't realize that everybody, you know, everybody can read the form. I, you know, I, I, I love when a handicapper says, well, I read the form. I, I, you know, there used to be a movie a long time ago. Um, and, um, it was called If You Could See What I See. It was about a blind man. Yeah, and it was a really good movie. But if you could see what I see, people, I get a lot of people want to compete with me. Oh, well, I read the form. I know what I'm talking about. Well, I do something completely different. 
You know, I actually look at the horses where for other people that pick up the form or the brisnets, everybody sees the same fast performances. And that's the biggest thing that I find interesting. I always say if a guy buys his racing form at the same liquor store, you know, uh, that you do, then you shouldn't listen. He has no reason to tell you he knows more than you, you know, and and I tell that to handicappers. Um, But each one of us has a niche. My niche is looking at horses physically. Didn't start out that way. I started making figures. What is Christopher Laramie's niche when he's looking at the races? Well, I think you bring that's a really good point. I do think another key is, you know, focus on your strengths and try to, you know, avoid the places you're weak. For me, you know, my strength is just I'm I'm a math guy, so I understand the numbers, but I I put them all in context and I'm good at looking at lots of information and sort of finding patterns. And so, you know, that's a really good skill to have um, as a handicapper and horse player. I'm lucky as I have a natural ability to do that. Um, So I can kind of see patterns that maybe others that don't or don't appreciate. And I also can think probabilistically so that, um, you know, everything's not black and white to me. You know, I'm not saying this. I don't fall in love with a horse. I'm not saying this horse can't lose or this horse can't win. You know, I'm looking at it probabilistically and saying based on what I think the chances are, is this price on this horse a good bet or not? And so those things I'm, I have a pretty good intuition for and pretty naturally able to do. And there are things that many other people struggle with. I mean, anything that's math-related um, there's some people who just, you know, that that's complete turnoff for them. So I think that's probably my strength. Um, but the other thing is I've tried to develop uh, an entire toolkit over the years and, and continue to get better over time and try to make sure that I don't try to use, a, you know, a screwdriver or a hammer on every race. You know, I'm not looking for a nail on every race. I'm looking at every race and saying, okay, given what's in front of me, what tools do I need to pull out and put in play? to make get the most value out of this race that I can. And it's it can be very different from one race to the next. So being flexible, using that whole toolkit, you know, not just relying on, you know, the same tool over and over again is another thing I think I'm pretty good at kind of um, being versatile and flexible in that way. I think that's a great point. Fantastic point you made. Because I know handicappers that handicap a $10,000 claiming race the same they would do a main, a, a, a an allowance race or a stakes race. For example, when I get the, the when there's a big carryover and I get the call, hey, who do you like in that ten thousand dollar claiming race? I noticed you didn't have any workouts, you didn't see any, and I'm thinking you're looking for workouts in a ten thousand dollar claiming race. Uh, we got to talk because <laughs> you know, and 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 the claiming horses, less is more. You don't want to see them working in the morning. They, you know, I prefer them to be jogging or doing things that sharpens them up. Um, one of my favorite ways of looking at it, I look for claiming horses that had big works before the last, were put in a higher level, and now we're dropping without works and maybe 20, 21 to 28 days between starts. That's where the claiming horses do well. Um, 
Sometimes even when a claiming horse is adding a uh, bug boy and a drop in class. And, you know, that usually is a very good sign that the trainer is trying to get the weight off the horse and putting them with, with, with cheaper horses. So I, I sometimes I'm frustrated when I'm approached about certain things that I think handicappers should know. And I really shouldn't be. But um, and that's what this made me decide to go and do Zooms where I can talk to people and, and, and share that information. Now, maidens confuse a lot of players. Do they confuse you? Uh, they're probably not maidens in general, but the, you know, two-year-old maidens when they're the kind you probably live for, you know, where they're all first-time starters and maybe a few have made a start. Those are my least favorite races just because, um, you know, they're, they're so unexposed that it's just there's not a lot of information to sift through on that. I know that's probably the races where you've made some of your biggest scores, and that's the reason why I like to listen to someone like you and what your opinion is of those horses, you know, when I have a race like that, saying a pick five that I'm trying to play. Well, I, you know, when, when, when I look at main races, you know, I've already, you know, with, with one thing that's, that's an absolutely been absolutely fantastic, uh, all the videos of all the yearlings from last year um, and this year also all the sales have videos of yearlings and watching them walk and, and looking at the way they're built and the way they move. It's been paramount. Uh, uh, I've been really an incredible additional tool in my toolkit when I look at maiden races and I'm able to almost disqualify certain horses. I don't care how they're training, uh, because of the way they're built and, and what they can do. And I've learned to be able to look at the, um, uh, the correlation between, between uh, having offset joints and the way they move uh, in particular races and, and how it's going to affect them. So, yes, I mean, I, 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 those are my favorites. Um, I also, watching horses in the morning and watching how they move and watching how they change and even improve or regress, it's been another part of the game that I really tried to step up and do. So in a lot of ways, I've changed my game a lot over the last few years as far as just doing more of that. Um, every handicapper can't do that. Obviously, you know, it's very hard for, uh, you know, you to look at a yearling walk video and, and try to and, and try to analytically approach it. Um, not that I'm saying you can't, but, you, you know, you'd have to apply yourself to be able to get there. Um, so I, I, it's it's like to each his own, isn't it? That was to be our that was our high school song to each his own. Jeez, uh, I'm dating I'm dating myself. You know, 1979, but America was the name of the band. Um, but it's it's very much like that, you know, where what what works for you may not work for me. Yeah, definitely. And what what you describe, what's good, and you sort of brought this up before. You know, to me, it's sort of, if it's in the daily racing form, it's in the odds. You know, sort of baked in there. You're not getting value um, for things that are kind of obvious stuff in the form. The things you're talking about are things you don't get in the racing form. You know, it's information that, you know, maybe only you or, you know, not that many other people have. And that's how you can get an edge. So, you know, definitely you want to try to find those places where you think you can get an edge. You know, you, with your skill set, you know, it's these um, lightly raced horses, maidens, things like that. You know, that's where you're going to, that's your wheelhouse. 
and that's probably where you focus and that's probably where you make your better scores. You know, for me, that's a weakness. And I just, you know, I, I try to rely on people like you to help me in those areas. Um, but, you know, that, that's not where I'm going to focus. And you know, that'll be more like there's a pick or a race like that in a sequence I want to play. I need to get through it. I need some help. You know, let me see what Bruno has to say about that horse. Um, uh, that's not where I'm going to focus. Now, you're right. I could probably work on it and get better. And maybe I will. That's just not one of the areas I've ever really focused before is, you know, the being able to look at young horses, especially yearlings, and, and see how well they move and how that's going to translate to performance on the track in a year or two. It's, it's fascinating. But I will say, um, another part of the, of the game, of the handicapping, is, is and you mentioned it, the, um, um, how do I put, connections. For example, um, understanding certain owners with certain trainers with certain jocks and their connections and, you know, where they come from. Um, it was interesting. I texted Chad Brown after Jack Christopher broke his main to Saratoga on August 22nd on Travers Day. Um, and actually, uh, no, that was August 28th, 29th, sorry. Uh, actually, 28th uh, for people that want to go look at the race. Jack Christopher reminded me a lot of good magic. The way he moved, the way he acted wasn't, you know, good magic was, I believe, by Curlin. This one's by... Um, uh, uh, Munnings, but they almost had the similar way of moving. Uh, and I texted Chad and I said, the way this horse runs and moves, he reminds me a lot of uh, good magic. Chad wrote me back right away. He said, he, he said, that's amazing. I, I put Jose Ortiz on Jack Christopher because I told him he reminded me of good magic and he rode good magic. So, Sometimes just looking at connections and little things like that, uh, finding the, 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 the owner trainer, you know, for example, there's a couple of farms that get horses ready in Louisiana and send them up to Dallas Stewart and they fire, they're ready. So once you pick those up, it almost becomes ingrained. Now, having said that, does Christopher have, now we're on third name, ba third, third uh, person <laughs> basis. Does Christopher have, uh, some examples that you can put of some of the things that you look for when you're when you're analytically and I love the way you said it. Uh, prop, I, I can't say it. probability wise. Um, Probabilistic, yeah. Probabilist. That is a great word. I might steal that and name a horse probabilistic. Can you spell it for me though? When uh, uh, when when you're done, can you send me an email with that spelled correctly? Because I love you that. Bet. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and if that horse ever becomes anything, I will give you credit. Um, but um, but tell me a little bit about the, the what something that would stand out to Christopher. Well, so I mean, <laughs> that's a tough question. But just you know, what I way I usually approach a race is I want to look at each horse and see you know how well it's performed in the past. And what sort of condition it seems to be in coming into the race, and then sort of project what I think, it, and then what, how this current race is going to unfold, and with all that, put that together and say, okay, how, what do I think this horse is going to do in this race, given 
the competition, the likely pace scenario, the um, and, and how fast it has been, and how likely it is to regress or improve off its recent races. And I'll I'll look at that and all the horses, and I'll try to assign a likelihood for each of those horses um, to win the race. And what I'm trying to do is find a horse or two um, where I think the chances of their winning is, you know, significantly different than what I think the actual odds will be at post time for the race. And that, and that's where you get value either in a negative way where you think a favorite was going to be over bet. You think it has much less of a chance to win than the public is you. That's, that's an edge that you can play or there's a, a horse that you think will offer value will go off at a higher price um, than it should be based on what you think the chances are of it winning. And a lot of the horses I bet, my estimate of their winning probability is like 15 or 20% or 25%. So think about that. I'm betting most of the horses I bet to win, I know if I'm right, I'm going to be wrong You know, 80% of the time. I'm only going to be right one out of every five races. Um, but I know that over time, I'll show a long-term profit because I'm only playing horses that, you know, if they win 20% of the time, I'll be making a profit long-term. But, I mean, think about that, that I'm, I'm playing horses that I think are going to lose 80% of the time. That's really hard. And a lot of, very seldom am I playing the horse I think is the most likely to win the race because it's not very often that horse, I think, is actually um, more likely to win than the crowd. Typically, favorites are underlays. Not always. You know, I, it's not like I won't play a favorite. But, um, that, you know, that's the part. Thinking probabilistically and being able to willing to accept the fact that the horse you think mo is most likely to win is not a good bet, even though he's more likely to win than the horse you're betting on. And then watching the race and watch that favorite win and beat your horse you know, be able to accept that as still making a good decision about how to bet the race. Some people just can't, they can't wrap their head around that. They can never accept that. Um, but to be a successful player long-term, you know, you, you know, you almost have to be able to, to do that. Now, there are exceptions, but you know, for me anyway, you know, that's the way I approach it. And so it's sort of a probabilistic way of looking at things where I'm trying to find value. And then, you know, based on that opinion, you know, I bet in a way that's consistent with that, knowing that I'm going to lose more often than I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to cash um, as often as I'm going to lose. And, and Base, that's something. Baseball traditionists and fanatics are going to love this, this point I'm going to make. You actually shoot for the Mendoza line. There used yeah. to be a shortstop for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And I want to say his name was Mario Mendoza. And I'm pulling it up on Google. And he was a phenomenal. He gobbled up everything as a shortstop. Um, and But he was a 200 hitter. Uh, and, and it was Mario Mendoza for the Pittsburgh Pirates whose batting, batting average was defined the threshold um, uh, the threshold for a legitimate 
baseball hitter. Um, the cutoff point is most often said to be, uh, okay, here's the way that they, they, they put it. The batting average is taken to define the threshold of incompetent hitting. The cutoff point is most often said to be the 200 uh, mark in baseball. But, however, on Christopher's level for handicapping, 20% is accessible. So you're hitting 200, and that's ex- acceptable for you. Well, because I'm playing horses that are typically double-digit odds. Now, 20% is not going to make you long-term profit if you're playing the favorite, clearly. I mean, uh, but it, that's the sort of horses I focus on because that's the kind of horses I can find on a consistent basis that I think offer value. Uh, it's just that sometimes they're lower price, and I think they have a higher chance of winning. But it's always – I never make a bet unless I think that um, there's an edge there. You know, I don't ever play a horse that I think is an underlay. Now, that's in a win bet. Now, in a pick five, you know, sometimes I'll single a horse in a pick five sequence that I think is an underlay in the win pool. But it's still, um, you know, the best way to get through that sequence. Uh, but I try to avoid doing the, even that. But sometimes, you know, you just you're presented with a sequence where you get a strong favor like there was at Woodbine this this weekend. And, you know, I'm just going to single it. I, I'm not really giving up any value by singling a horse if it wins. Um, so, that you know, that – but in the win bets and for key horses in, in, in you know, vertical plays, you know, I try to insist on, on that value as the – without that, I'm not going to make the play. I just pass the race. If I can't find value in this race, I'm just not going to bet it. Well, the one point you make about favorites – or at least Christopher tries to shoot for it to be above the Mendoza line of 200 uh, batting average. What is a good batting average for a horse player? It really depends on what sort of horses you play. If you're a chalk player, your batting average better, you know, if you want to show a long-term profit, it's probably got to be better than 33%. Right. Because, you know, that's about how often favorites win if you just bet every favorite and you're going to lose the, you know, the take on that or close to it. So you, you know, to beat the takeout, you better be beating the, and you're playing favorites. You better be, you know, winning more often than that. If you're playing mid price horses, you can get away with a lower hit percentage. It just depends on the type of horse you play. I mean, there's a thing called the Kelly formula, which is, I'm not going to get into the math, but it basically is, it's kind of quantifies the idea of risk versus reward. Um, if you're playing a long shot, the risk is higher. The risk being you're less likely to cash, but the reward is higher in that you're going to get more um, if it does come in. You know, if you're playing long shots, the the risk is higher and the reward is higher. If the va- even when you have value, you're still risking. The risk is higher because you could have longer periods of of you know losing streaks. For me, if I'm playing horses that only win 20% of the time, it's pretty easy for me to go a card, play three or four horses, and not hit any of them. Um, where if I'm playing chalk uh, and I play, you know, five or six races, I'll probably hit a couple. If I'm not hitting a couple every day, I'm really in trouble. So, I mean, it just sort of depends on your style and the sort of horses that you're focused in on. But no matter which way you do it, um, you've got to find value. And by that, value means... 
in the long term, you've got to be getting enough back when you do cash to make up for the times that you don't. If you're playing favorites, that means you're going to be cashing more often, uh, not making as much when you cash, but you better cash more frequently. If you're playing long shots, you can get away with, you know, a lower hit rate, you know, like maybe even at the Mendoza line or below. Um, but you have to realize that you have to, to accept a lot more losing and a lot longer losing streaks. Uh, the, the reward in that is if you're good at finding value in those kinds of horses, uh, it's probably easier to find an overlay at 10 or 12 to one than it is to find an overlay at, you know, eight to five or six to five. You know, the funny thing, I think we've made it a thing of uh, the Mendoza line now. <laughs> uh, but uh, the one thing about that's that's really interesting to me is, like, for example, if you and I were to compare percentages, it wouldn't be fair to you and it wouldn't be fair to me. We are, I, you know, for example, I have to, we have to handicap the night before and publish the morning of or the night before every race where you would probably not put every race down within your um, probabilistic, I can't even say it. Probabilistic. Probabilistic. <laughs> probabilistic. Uh, uh, there's going to be an announcer in the next couple of years is going to hate me, you know? Um, I won't tell him you told me, though. So, I, so. Uh, But uh, the thing is, is that we have to pick every race. My average at Saratoga varied from 23% to 26% on top choice winners. Um, there was a couple of uh, days where about a week and a half, we were hitting at 32%. Um, but that's picking every race uh, right. where other horse players don't have to play every race. Don't have to, you know, have every race handicapped with a top choice in a second. What I found is our top two choices went around 46, 46, between 42 to 46 percent of the time, which I think is pretty strong. Um, and it's just interesting to me how each handicapper, you can't compare a handicapper with another handicapper because of the way their structure, the way they have to structure their picks and for the reason why they have to use those picks. Yeah, sense? certainly not. Yeah, certainly not just looking at just the, the win percentage. And you make a really good point that people don't appreciate about public handicappers. Two big things. One, they they do every race, you know, like guys at DRF or you, you know, they're doing every race at the tracks they're covering and they do it a day or two in advance without knowing scratches and biases and and, you know, weather and and, that, and that, like on our podcast, you know, we recorded, you know, a day or so before that that makes it a lot tougher and people just don't appreciate how much tougher that is. Those public handicappers are actually better than most people give them credit for, um, be, for those reasons. Oh, I, I totally agree. You know, I mean, I know what I have to do in advance to be able to get it out. And, and here's the point, you know, a, a lot of the times you get people that handicap with all the scratches and changes in front of them. Where, you know, we've got, you know, we view the race in a certain manner. And, and, and as you know, you are a, um, um, you know, Racing Bruno subscriber. Um, 
we have been able now to cross that, 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 how do I put it? Um, we've been able to cross that bridge to where now we can, if there's a, a day at the races that has been, uh, uh, there's a lot of scratches and there's off the turf, we can actually rebuild that. We can actually take out all the horses that have been scratched, change the surface, and actually rerun that race with the actual horses that are running. And I've found that to be absolutely phenomenal uh, in, in, my own, uh, in my own handicapping that I can actually be able to see now what that race is all about. And not a lot of people get to do that. And a lot of people don't do that once the scratches come out. They stay with the same picks and the same look at the race the same way. And that, that, could, be, that could be a disaster if you're looking to make a, 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 a have a good day at the races. Yeah, that's a big advantage because, you know, just a scratch of one horse could completely change the way a race is likely to unfold. You know, so it can make a big difference. Just one scratch, even a, a horse that you, isn't one that you were playing or playing to play against, but it just, it was maybe the only other speed horse in the race. Now, all of a sudden, that one horse looks like lone speed. You know, if you, before it looked like the horse was going to hook up with another horse. You know, that's a big difference. So to be able to factor something like that in um, is really a big advantage. Here's a great scenario. You have a horse in the two hole. Right. He had just let's just say the one horse, the one horse scratches. Now, all of a sudden, you're stuck down on the one hole. A lot of mistakes handicappers do is they do not check how the one hole does. At that track, for example, people always say, buddy, drew the rail and, and let's say it's Gulfstream Park. Well, the rail is 22 percent sprinting at Gulfstream Park. So all of a sudden they're saying, buddy, drew the rail. They're not paying attention that that actually is a good thing at, at that track. On uh, flip side, yeah, let's say the track is a nine percent on on the rail, and and if you keep stats about the maidens that were down on the rail or first time starters, you got a hot first time starter. Then all of a sudden, the inside two horses scratch and he gets down on the inside. Or another one. How about the horse in the ten hole scratching, and you're in the nine hole, and you're thinking I'm going to get the outside trip. This is great. However, now that you're the nine hole and you're the horse on the far outside, a lot of times that horse on the far outside has never started from that post before, breaks out to well past and goes out towards the outside rail. And we've had times like that where you can call it and say, I think this horse is going to break out to the outside. Uh, so little things like that, you know, that can actually alter um, your idea of what that race is all about. Little things can actually change the entire complexion of the race. Yeah, and that's a lot of the, the ways those little things are where you get the edge. That, um, you know, the not obvious little things that maybe people don't see or don't um, undervalue, that's how you get an edge. And you need an edge to make, a, you know, to find value. Without any sort of edge, if you're just um, looking at the racing form the same way most everybody else does, uh, you really have no chance at all to be successful long term. You have to figure out somehow, some way um, to get an edge. And, and there's a, lots of different ways to go about it. And that's what's fun about the game. But that's the secret to success is you really do have to be able to figure out some way to find that value. Now, before, I, before we uh, end this podcast, it's been really the hour has flown by. 
thank you so much for taking an hour of your time, missing Monday Night Football, and uh, and and spending it with us. Um, tell me, tell tell everybody out there uh, how they can listen to you and Scott on your podcast. Okay, we're on. It's called the Sport of Kings podcast. If you look up Sport of Kings on, you know, iTunes or Spotify or whatever place you get your podcasts, you can get it there. You could also go to sportofkings.net. That's the contest website that Scott has. And you can find the podcast, a link to the podcast there. And you can also sign up for free contests, free past performances, especially if you haven't ever played contests before and you want to get a feel for what it's all about. You can do it for free, you know, get free DRF past performances for races every day of the week if you want to play or just on the weekends. So that's sportofkings.net. So just remember Sport of Kings. Um, and also, if you follow me on Twitter or Scott Carson on Twitter, um, you know, we always tweet out a link after the pod drops, and it comes out on Friday afternoon. Uh, and we usually cover a late pick five from whatever track has got the, you know, the best card for that. Like we covered Woodbine Mile card last week, and we're going to cover the you know, the big parks card with the Pennsylvania Derby this week. And before this pod drops on Twitter this evening, and before I let you go, give us another, maybe a little nugget of something that Chris looks for in, in, a, in a horse. What is your favorite thing you look for in a horse? Well, that's easy for me. Um, I look at the long-term pattern so i'm really looking at how a horse develops physically over time and people have to realize horses develop much more quickly um, than humans but in human terms you know two-year-olds are just babies they're like elementary kids when they're out there racing in the summer as a two-year-old and um you know in the fall two-year-old early uh, spring of the three-year-old they're like high school kids you know they're still learning and developing uh, you know, they're probably in college by now, the three-year-olds. And by the end of their three-year-old year, kind of heading into the four-year-old year, they're, they're, I don't know if you call them a pro, but they're, you know, ready to graduate from college. And that's when you'll see some of the better three-year-olds take on the four-year-olds. So understanding how they develop over time and factoring that into the way you play uh, really gives you insight, helps you able to project improvement in horses uh, that isn't necessarily readily apparent in the form. And, and where this really comes into play is when you have horses come back after a layoff from two to three or three to four, um, you can project this improvement and um, you can use that to identify horses that are likely to maybe run the career best effort. So maybe they were only running 80 buyers before and now you think they could pop a 90 buyer and that could win this race. And since there's other horses in here that um, are faster than that horse has run in the past, you might get a good price. That That's one of my favorite angles is horses making their first or second, maybe even third start off a layoff um, when they, they, they've demonstrated their fit and you know they've developed quite a bit physically from um, prior to the layoff. Those are the races where they pop those career best races. That's where I've made some of my biggest scores where horses make that big forward move and, you know, they, they run much better than they ever have a number that they've, they've never run before. And that's when you can get them at a price. That's my favorite angle. You know, there's all kinds of variations on it, but that's the main theme that's been really profitable for me. 
Get more from Bruno by going to racingwithbruno.com.